0: Nothing replaces a visit to the tasting room, but on occasions when you can't swing a visit to wine country, consider bringing the winery experience to your home with Somley. Somley features many of the highest quality small production wines you won't find in stores or restaurants. Wine lovers like you can get the very best Texas wine shipped right to your doorstep. Texas wineries join the direct-to-consumer digital wine movement. You can now claim, customize, and list your wines for sale on Somley's Marketplace in Minutes. With Somley, you can grow your DTC wine sales, club memberships, and visits to your tasting room. Whether you're a wine lover or a winemaker, check it out today at somley.com. Are you looking for a custom crush partner? Bending Branch Winery offers full spectrum bend to bottle services. The experienced winemaking team specializes in red wine production. Advanced extraction options are available to get the most out of red wine grapes. Join Bending Branch and its clients in producing highly awarded wines. For more information, email Dr. Bob Young at bob at bendingbranch.com. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news... Interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 58. Today, my guest is James Tidwell, Master Sommelier, writer, speaker, and educator. James is responsible for putting Texas wine in front of thousands of sommeliers, buyers, and other wine industry professionals through his work with Texom and the Texom Awards, an international wine and spirits competition. And even before that, he was an early adopter, putting dozens of Texas wines on the wine list at Four Seasons in Las Colinas. On this episode, James shares a number of great tips for wineries that are seeking restaurant placements. He talks about which varieties and wine styles from Texas have impressed him and more. But first, we'll start this episode, like all the others, with a rundown of how Texas wine is showing up in the news. Then stick around for the end when I give out demerits and gold stars. It's been a while since I've given out a demerit, but I'm giving one today. And a gold star, too. Thanks for listening to This is Texas Wine. It's always nice to get some Texas wine press and a national publication. In the March edition, Condé Nast Traveler published an article about Fredericksburg called This Once Quiet Texas Town is Now a Booming Wine Destination. The article claims that although Texas wine country lacks the national profile of its brethren in the West, it's a major tourist attraction for the state and one of the fastest growing domestic wine regions. It goes on to say most weekends, the wineries along the Wine Road 290 are filled with locals, weekenders and road trippers on their way to Marfa or Big Bend National Park who have stopped by the striking new tasting areas of venues like Alexander Vineyards and Heath Sparkling Wines for a glass or two. The New Zealand Herald ran a long article about Grapevine, Texas and about Grapefest in particular. Two Texas wineries and Grapevine got mentioned, Messina Hoff and Cross Timbers. There will soon be a new addition to the Texas wine scene in Bernie. You may know the name Missick Cellars from the Finger Lakes. Owner Chris Missick has attended the Texas Hill Country Wine Symposium for the past couple of years, and this year he was on a panel about wineries moving to Texas. The news is out that Missick Cellars in the Finger Lakes is for sale, and Chris and his family are moving to Burney. A recent press release reports that Missick Cellars will transition to mobile wine services, offering cross-flow filtration, mobile bottling, and ultimately sparkling wine services. Chris plans to start producing wines from Texas-grown grapes, as well as planting an estate vineyard, and may also offer a selection of the Missick Cellars Library of Finger Lakes Wines. I don't believe I've ever mentioned Cosmopolitan magazine before on this podcast, but here goes. In an article called March Madness, but it's vineyards, the author asks, What do basketball brackets and wine have in common? Absolutely nothing, unless you consider pitting America's top vineyards against each other to find out who's best, which we do. Coming in at number seven is William Chris Vineyards. The winner of the wine bracket is Ridge Vineyards. So the very fact that Cosmo is running an article about wine brackets proves that I, in fact, do not have enough creativity to make a living as a wine writer. Amy Beth Wright is back with another article for Wine Enthusiast. It's called Malvasia Bianca, an Ancient Grape Shows a Promising Future. The article quotes two Texas growers, Nikila Nara Davis of Nara Vineyards and Colisee Cellars. And Victor Pulos of Vin Valley Vineyards of Southwest Texas. He comments that he's been growing the grape for 20 years and pouring it for 16, but still has to tell people what it is and how to pronounce it. So how do you pronounce it? The Italians definitely say Malvasia. In an article on Texas wine lover website, Dr. Carl Hudson says that some people say Malvasia, while others prefer Malvasia. Malvasia Bianca from Italy and Croatia are also mentioned. The article says that the grape thrives in hot, dry climates and on sloping terrains with good drainage. The USDA's report on Texas grape varieties shows that in 2020, there were about 25 acres of the grape in Texas, and about 21 of those were located on the Texas High Plains. While a number of wineries make wine from this ancient grape, there's just one that I know of that promotes Malvasia Bianca as their flagship grape, and that's Farmhouse Vineyards. They use it for dry, semi-sweet, and sparkling wines. Now let's talk about what's going on in the vineyards. Shara Mills from Kerrville Hills Winery says that things are looking just right for this time of year. Some of the buds are starting to soften, but she's not seeing any woolly buds yet. Shara says she's happy with everything she's seeing. There's warm weather in the forecast this week, and so things might speed up quickly. Meanwhile, over at Lewis Wines in Johnson City, Alicante Boucher is waking up, and they say we may be about to see our earliest bud break ever. Ice wine in Texas? Bending Branch has released what may be the first ice wine in Texas history. It's the 2020 Cabernet Sauvignon ice wine from Why Not Vineyard. Dr. Bob Young says at the tail end of a long 2020 growing season in the West Texas High Plains, one allotment of Bending Branch Winery's Cabernet Sauvignon froze on the vine for three days. The grapes were hand-harvested on October 28th and then delivered on dry ice by the growers. The grapes were pressed soon after arrival, still in a frozen state. This wine is in very limited release. There were only 19 cases, and those are 375 milliliter bottles, and only a very few remain. By the way, I found out that Why Not Vineyard is one of only a few certified organic growers in the state. Dr. Bob says it may be 100 years before Bending Branch can produce ice wine from grapes naturally frozen on the vine, but plans are underway to create an ice wine using grapes that are put into the deep freezer and pressed while frozen. This ice wine was included in a Wine Enthusiast article in January of favorite ice wines to try. Dr. Russ Kane is offering the first ever Level 2 Specialist of Texas Wine Advanced Certification Course through the Texas Wine School. If you've already taken Level 1 and want to step up your knowledge, sign up now. Classes are virtual and they start in April. There's a test at the end and some tastings along the way. I'll be there and I hope you will be too. Sign up at thetexaswineschool.com. Rootstock Wine Fest will be held in Waco at Indian Springs Park on Saturday, April the 15th. In just a moment, I'm going to give you a code to use to get a discount on your ticket. You may know that I grew up in Waco, and this is my hometown wine festival, and I'm attending it for the first time. I may be doing a little on-site podcast recording. There's also a VIP dinner after the festival that I'll be attending, so don't wait You can get your tickets at RootStockWineFest.com and enter code Shelly for the discount. That's S-H-E-L-L-Y. And I'll look forward to seeing you there. I am pleased that Denise Silverman, the executive director of the Wine and Food Foundation, is with me to share some information about Toast of Texas. This is another event happening in April that you will not want to miss. In fact, the entire month of April is filled with awesome Texas wine events. And so I fully expect that your calendar should be filled every weekend at a minimum with something going on in the Texas wine scene. Here's Denise to give us the scoop. Denise, thanks for being here to talk to us about the Wine and Food Foundation's Toast of Texas. In case people haven't already heard of Wine and Food Foundation, can you talk about what the organization does?
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Shelly. I'm a big fan of This is Texas Wine podcast, as you know. Um, The Wine and Food Foundation, our mission is to cultivate and invest in the wine and food community through education, appreciation, and enjoyment. So uh, what that means for us is basically we are are an events-driven nonprofit organization. Uh, We do many events each year, some larger events like Toast of Texas that we'll be talking about, Um, And then also lots of smaller events, educational events. Um, We have a series called Imbibe, the Wine and Food Foundation Education Series, which is um, usually tastings and education about various wine varieties or winemakers. We also host uh, WSET education here, which is a great wine certification through the Texas Wine School. So, yeah, lots of events that help people um, learn about wine, who are enthusiasts, um, become uh, more educated about wine, and also to build a community. We are all about community. People who come to our classes and events get to know each other because of their passion and enthusiasm about wine and food, and it's great to see this particular
0: event um this will be my third year to attend and it takes place in bee cave i have sunday april the 23rd at star hill ranch which is the same location as last year so even if you're not located in austin this is worth a trek to bee cave just outside of austin to come to toast of texas
1: can you tell me a little bit about what to expect that day yeah, absolutely. So Toast of Texas is the event that we do where we support our local Texas winemakers. Star Hill Ranch, like you said, it's been a great location for us, and so we're back there this year. It's uh, it's really not far from Central Austin. It's kind of just outside Central Austin. Um, it's like Southwest Austin um, on off Hamilton Pool Road. And um, we call this a sip and stroll style event. So this is where we have some of Texas's top winemakers come in. And they have samples of several of the wines that they're currently offering and our attendees get to taste the wines. Um, the ticket prices also inclu- include the food at the event, which is barbecue and paella. Um, and we'll have some other fun interactive uh, parts of the event as well. But the primary goal is for people to get more exposed to Texas wine and see some of the amazing options there are from our local Texas winemakers.
0: Sip and stroll is a nice way to to refer to it. I like that. Last year, I know (laughs) I spoke with one Texas winemaker who was so impressed with the event. She said, this isn't like your typical wine festival. A lot of wineries do send their winemaker or owner, and there's always an opportunity to talk and not just kind of stand in line for pours. So it is a very special event, and I'm um, thrilled to be participating in the VIP tasting. Do you want to mention that as well? I know that's a members-only event, but I understand there is still... Um there are still a few tickets, and if people are willing to become members if they're not already, then perhaps they could attend that as well.
1: Yes, we're so excited. This is only the second time we've done a VIP event for Toast of Texas. Uh last year was the first one, and we had you involved with that one as well. Um the the sort of the way it works is uh we you chose uh your your top five Texas wines of the moment and invited those winemakers to sit on a panel that you moderate to talk about their wines, but also the state of the Texas wine industry um, and an opportunity to um, take questions from, from the people who attend. As you mentioned, our VIP event is only open to Wine and Food Foundation members. Um, the, the main event is open to everyone. And that VIP event also, of course, includes um, a tasting of those wines that you chose and along with some uh, additional food options. So um, anyone can become a Wining Food Foundation member. Um, the benefits are listed on our website at winefoodfoundation.org. Um, and the, the biggest benefit is that you get discounted tickets to all of our events. And you get uh, invitations to some of our members-only opportunities like this one. So it's a great opportunity to sign up for membership and get to attend a special event like this. Our VIP events always sell out. It sold out last year. As you mentioned, we've got about, I think, 16 or 18 tickets left. um, And we expect that to sell out in the next week or two, I would say.
0: Excellent. That was such a fun time last year. Standing room only had a super fun panel and we tasted five great wines. And I know this year's wines will be equally awesome. And the winemakers are looking forward to it. And I'm excited to share some of the, my favorite things that I've tasted lately and with this crowd that I know is interested in Texas wine. Another cool feature of this event is that people can actually place orders for wines that they would like to purchase. Can you mention that opportunity?
1: Yes, absolutely. This is through our wonderful partnership with HEB. Uh, HEB is a big and long standing sponsor and partner of the Wine and Food Foundation. And our wineries work with HEB to um, enable HEB to sell their wines. You can place your order at the event and then work with HEB to pick up your orders at the HEB of your choosing. Um, so it's a great way for our uh, community to be able to have easier access to some of the wine that sometimes you can only find by going, you know, a, a trip to the hill country. <laughs> so this this makes it a little easier for everyone to have access to that wine.
0: Great. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And I'm glad to know that you've already had a tremendous response from Texas wineries that want to participate. And I'll be looking forward to uh, seeing everyone
1: there. Where should people go if they want to buy tickets or membership? Our website is winefoodfoundation.org, and you will find Toast of Texas tickets on the website uh, for members, non members, as well as the VIP experience. And listeners to your podcast can get $10 off of tickets by using code SHELLY, S H E L L Y. Put in that code, and you'll get $10 off your ticket price.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Denise. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Denise. Y'all move fast to secure those tickets. You can DM me for details or find the links in the show notes. And remember, for both Rootstock and Toast of Texas, you can use code Shelly to get a discount. Find the links to these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. James Tidwell is a writer, speaker, and educator. He founded and produces the Texom Conference and produces the Texom Awards. James has a number of writing credits to his name. He has consulted on the World Atlas of Wine 8th Edition, an upcoming update to the Oxford Companion to Wine. He contributes to the annual Hugh Johnson Pocket Wine Book and is an editorial committee member for the Classic Wine Library. James is also panel chair for the USA and Mexico at Decanter's World Wine Awards He's a grand jury judge for the Wines of Portugal Challenge and a judge for the World of Fine Wine Magazine's World's Best Wine List Award. His articles have been published in World of Fine Wine, Lonely Planet, and other outlets. James has earned accolades, including selection as a rising star sommelier in 2007 by Star Chefs. He was nominated as WSET's Outstanding Alumni in 2017, he was nominated for Person of the Year in Wine Enthusiast Magazine's Wine Star Awards in 2019 and was named one of Wine Business Monthly's Wine Business Leaders in 2021. In addition to passing the Master Sommelier exam, he has a diploma from the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. He's a certified wine educator, a certified specialist of spirits, a certified tea specialist, a certified sake professional, And he has graduated from both LSU and the Culinary Institute of America. And if James is listening to this, he's probably wanting me to hurry it up because he's not one for drawing attention to himself. I first met James at a wine tasting luncheon in 2018, and I told him I was studying wine and that I wanted to volunteer for the Texom Wine Awards. If you've been listening to this podcast since the beginning, you know that I talk about Texom a lot because my time volunteering with Texom has really had a huge impact on me. Through my association, I've tasted great wine, sure, but also learned a lot about wine competition management, labeling laws, service, and of course I've met a lot of truly great people. So James has been following Texas wine much, much longer than I have. He was truly an early adopter when it comes to Texas wine, and it was a pleasure to talk with him and get his take on everything from restaurant wine lists to what Texas wines have impressed him. Here's our conversation. All right, James, I would love to hear how you got into wine.
2: I got into wine through food. Uh, My family's always been, uh, we've always been eaters. And uh, at the same time, we weren't necessarily dining at the fanciest restaurants. So my experience with food was uh, more home food, and then after I got out of university, I went to Germany to work on a work exchange program. My boss was French. We made food service equipment uh, for the business and sold it throughout Europe. So I got the experience of a lot of restaurants and hotels in Europe long before I got into the business. But he encouraged me to get into food or the hospitality industries. And my interests seemed to be there. So when I came back, I explored that. I went into a hotel for a little while until I could figure out how to get to a restaurant to cook. And I did cooking at a restaurant in Little Rock, Arkansas for a year and a half before I went to the Culinary Institute of America and then went from there straight into wine. I'd been studying wine to go with food and decided I liked that as much or better.
0: So interesting. Do you still cook?
2: I do. I cook mostly simple foods at this point. Uh, I think that simple foods done well are difficult. There's, there's, no, there's nothing to cover up uh, with, with simpler foods. And I've gotten to the point that I, I enjoy the process of trying to get things that are simple right. And so I cook. Pretty simple foods, but yes, I do cook.
0: Even a scrambled egg, there's so much debate over the right way. I guess that <laughs> illustrates your point.
2: Yeah, well, at the Culinary Institute, they they always said to test a chef, ask for uh, roast chicken, mashed potatoes, and green beans because they are three simple things to do, but at the same time, three of the hardest things to do perfectly, and there's nothing to cover them up.
0: You're known as... Not just a wine expert, but a writer, speaker, consultant. You spent a significant portion of your career at the Four Seasons. Can you talk about what you did there and how Texas wine came onto your radar, either there or I assume it was there possibly before?
2: Yes, Texas wine was on my radar when I was working in New Jersey. I was uh, just outside of New York City and chatham new jersey at a restaurant known as a culinary destination and i researched wines broadly across the u.s we weren't able to get texas wines but i was aware of them uh, i took some classes in new york including the american Sommelier association classes and then wine and spirits education trust classes so was aware of texas wines but really my familiarity with texas wines came after i moved to dallas in 2002 and uh, not long after that took over the beverage program at the four seasons here Uh, being in texas of course i wanted to find out what was available locally this was really before the local wine movement even became a huge trend and eventually had i think 50 or more selections of texas wines on the wine list at a time when not many people were listing Texas wines. I enjoyed getting to know the regions, getting to know the winemakers, getting to know the wines. Uh, I did not find uh, Texas wines to be hard to sell. People were curious about them. People come to Texas, stay at uh, the Four Seasons for various reasons, but a lot of times from out of the state. So, a few of the things they want are barbecue and steak, of course. And with that, uh, I always wanted to sell Texas wine. So it was a nice opportunity to get to know the wines.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how you put that wine together? You were offering 50. That's a tremendous number, (laughs) probably more than only, I can only think of a few restaurants in the state that have that many Texas wines on the wine list. And I know that that, um, the Four Seasons wine list was recognized as a, Wine Spectator Award of Excellence location, but talk about what you were thinking about. Texas may have been, although folks were curious, maybe they weren't familiar with the region. So were you putting on varieties that maybe they had some familiarity with or was it always a hand sell? I mean, what was your strategy for the list?
2: The strategy for the list is a a topic that we could get into and, and probably spend an entire hour on that. Uh, But in general, with Texas wines, I did not concentrate on a particular set of varieties I thought people would particularly recognize or enjoy. Rather, I wanted to show what was on offer in Texas that I thought was representative and good and could be surprising for people. And that that really was my strategy, was to surprise people. Because by giving them something that was the same as they could get any other place. It it really didn't differentiate Texas necessarily. And so I, I enjoyed picking some of the varieties they may not be familiar with. Now that doesn't mean I didn't have things such as Chardonnay, Cabernet, Merlot, but I enjoyed some of the varieties that we now think of as modern classics, I suppose, for Texas. And, Some of the Mediterranean varieties and the Iberian Peninsula varieties, because people weren't as familiar with them. And so it was something, to my guest at least, that was uniquely Texas. And so it it made a point of differentiation for Texas.
0: I think the Texas wine industry has had some struggles getting on restaurant wine lists, either because of availability. And I'm talking within the state, much less beyond, but Mm -hmm. even within Texas. And I guess it's issues of um, availability or price point. I mean, what do you think is the key? Because although, you know, the local wine movement certainly is a thing, it doesn't always seem to have made its way to many Texas restaurants. You mentioned conferences, even in Grapevine, Texas, where you know a lot of conferences are happening. There are major restaurants in the area that have zero Texas wines what does what should wineries do to try to get on wine lists?
2: well, we we say the Texas wine industry or Texas wineries and and we use that as a collective noun. when in fact, the Texas wine industry is not a monolith. Uh, you know it's composed of upwards of five hundred, I believe now, wineries. Each of those are individual wineries, not not to mention the the number of winemakers and owners uh, involved. So, it's hard to, to generalize in a, in a way because there are many strategies for sales. And, you know, we've seen direct to consumer uh, boom during the COVID lockdown. Uh, that's backed off a little bit now. I was just reading. But there are various ways to go about sales. If people do want to be on restaurant wine lists, uh, if wineries want to be on those lists, then sales are sales. Um, it, it's really not different for Texas wines than, than anything else. And so what I would recommend is, is look into how to sell. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of, I, I laugh at, at that a little bit because it seems so easy and yet it's not, especially in the, the times we're living in now, the culture we're living in now because real sales take time. And it's not always easy. So what I would say is make it about the person you're selling to. Do enough research to understand what might motivate this particular person, buyer, restaurant, hotel, whatever your your, uh, aim is, because each of those will have a different motivation. And that takes time. And it takes energy. And I, I made this comment at the Sages Symposium a couple of years ago. And some of the winery owners said, wow, that's difficult. And I said, it is. But it's also sustainable. It's a relationship. And it, it lasts longer. And so what I would say is understand what would motivate them to put wine on the list. And that can change. Price is certainly one of those. But we'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But there are other reasons. Uh, For me, it was highlighting wines for the place that I was located and showing people something new and different that they might not have had elsewhere. In other words, a point of differentiation for four seasons. So I wasn't just selling Texas wine. I was selling four seasons as well because it, it really set apart our program to be able to emphasize Texas wines in that way. But there could be any number of other reasons. Uh, I created a number of years ago an expectation of wine reps with a corresponding what reps could uh, expect from me as a buyer at the Four Seasons. I've heard that that list is still hanging at one of the major distributors uh, where they put it on the wall. And it was published on GuildSong. It needs to be updated, but there are some very simple sales things on there. Understand how restaurants work. Showing up at 5 o'clock as a restaurant's opening to try to sell wine is probably not going to get you very far. Mm -hmm. Going into a restaurant and telling a buyer that they should have your wine on the list. Anytime somebody says should, I have to ask why. Give them the reason. Should is not a reason. And so give them the reason it makes sense for them to have a wine on the list. There are any number of those, but make it make sense for them. I was listening to a podcast the other day with Roxanne Gay and Debbie Millman and Debbie Millman does a lot of brand um, design and building. And this is exactly her point. If you make it make sense, for the person you're talking to, it's a no-brainer.
0: Yeah, that goes across industries, doesn't it?
2: Absolutely. But it requires work and it's hard and it may not be the proper path for every winery.
0: Are most beverage um, directors or whatever the title might be in any given mm-hmm. restaurant, are they open to meeting with individual winery representatives or just distributors?
2: That depends on the on the buyer and the situation at the Uh, location. So this gets into my second point about sales, which is uh, James Clear and Atomic Habits talks about friction with habits and increasing or decreasing frictions to either create a habit or get rid of a habit. Make it frictionless as much as possible for buyers to buy wine. And In this case, sometimes that means you may want to sit down as a winery owner uh, face-to-face with someone, but that's not how they take appointments. They may only do online or the phone or any number of other ways. So if you're the person selling, accommodate the person buying and try to adapt to their method. Likewise, I think it's um, important to understand that idea of sourcing and delivery because... As a buyer at Four Seasons, I dealt with a number of suppliers. But it was not easy to get any one supplier set up in our system. There were a lot of steps involved. And to get individual wines set up within a supplier also took work. So that was not frictionless. And if I am a, a buyer at Four Seasons, mm-hmm. working with uh, Texas Wines, I am probably first going to look at wines and distribution, because I already order from those companies. And so it's very easy, or easier, for me to buy those wines on a day-to-day basis, because I know the supply, I know when my trucks are running, deliveries are happening, and all of those types of logistics issues. It's harder for a buyer there's more friction if i have to work with an individual winery that's self-distributing doesn't mean i wouldn't do it but there's more friction involved there's there's more impediments right so i think it's important to understand the supply chain and the distribution system in terms of how do i make it easy for my customer Again, distribution may not be the way a winery wants to go. I'm not saying they have to. All I'm saying is if you want to sell into restaurants or hotels, you know, licensed facilities, you probably want to make it as frictionless as possible. And then, of course, pricing. Um, You won't be able to get the same pricing that you will DTC, uh, direct-to-consumer. You know, a, a restaurant or hotel needs to make some money and we could have a whole other discussion on ethics and economics of pricing in retail establishments. But the, the idea is that at some point they do need to make money and, and it uh, is more difficult to do that. If they're being sold at the same price a winery sells for, um, then there's not much room to make that happen. Because the consumer does have transparency. They can go online and look at pricing uh, on a winery's website, any number of search engines, and really find out what that wine is costing. So a winery will have to give up some points there you know, to, to get the placement, most likely. Mm-hmm. Customer service as follow-up is also important. So there's the idea of, of sales. And then logistics of getting the product to to the customer, to the buyer, and then there's there's customer service, there's follow up. Um, you know what I would say is is don't go into a buying situation, a selling situation in the case of a winery, um, with an entitled attitude. Uh, a restaurant hopefully will want to put Texas wines on the the list, but just because a wine is from Texas is probably not the only reason a wine uh, restaurant would do that. So going in and saying, well, you should put my wine on the list because I'm a Texas winery. is probably not the full story of the sale. It probably needs to be a little more than that. And then once you've, you've done that and you've gotten the wine to them, follow up. Um, Out of those 50 placements, I honestly can't think of a winery that um, came into the restaurant and ate there you know go out to eat in restaurants, say thank you uh just simple customer service follow up means a lot and it doesn't it does cost it does cost to eat in restaurants, but even just calling up and saying thank you or sending a note which is relatively inexpensive means a lot um Because it shows the buyer that you're paying attention. Again, it's really making it about the the person buying as opposed to about the person selling.
0: Mm -hmm. Likewise, one of our longtime podcast listeners uh, who works in a retail establishment that sells an awful lot of wine has over and over encouraged people to let their wine stewards know what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Because absolutely. feedback matters. So if you are at a restaurant and you don't see Texas wine, that's perhaps valuable information to give feedback on as well.
2: Yes, absolutely. I think that the uh, guests in the restaurants and hotels have a huge impact. And it's great when they give the feedback of what they want. And hopefully the buyer takes that. You know, hopefully the sommelier, or beverage director, whatever their title is takes that feedback and utilizes it, but yes, absolutely um, ask for the wines that you enjoy, or ask about uh, Texas wines in general, because that's one way of encouraging restaurants if they know they can sell it again, that makes it easier right to to justify placing it because every bottle of wine that gets bought sits on that shelf as capital tied up until it sells. Mm -hmm. That's the reality. And so if wine sits there for a very long time, that becomes capital intensive. Yep.
0: I want to shift focus a little bit and ask you to talk about Texom. I know that there are some people listening who have uh who know what Texom is and there are others that don't and it's many things so can you just give a little rundown mm-hmm. of of uh, all the different parts of Texom
2: Yes Texom is as you said a few different things Texom started as a an educational conference for the Texas wine service industry and I don't mean uh the industry serving Texas wines, but rather the service industry in Texas uh, that served wine. And the reason was that when it started in 2005, the internet was not what it is today. It was very hard to get information. Um, When I was studying for my exams, the best model was to take whichever most recent six books you could find on the subject and figure out how many of them you could have agree on something. So it required a lot of research uh, to to really learn about wine and uh, took a long time, took a lot of experience. Likewise, when I moved to Texas in 2002 from New York and New Jersey, the... Distributors and importers, the importers there uh, wouldn't really send their wines to Texas, or some of them wouldn't, because they felt like Texans only drink a couple of types of wine. So Texom was created to resolve much of that, um, as, or at least help. The idea was give the wine service industry in Texas good education from people who had a perspective outside of the local perspective, uh, people who were recognized nationally and internationally, who were experts in their field. In addition to that, uh, show those people that Texans and the Texas wine service industry were interested in wines from many places. And while I know that some of our friends from Texas wineries listening to this might say, well, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just promote Texas wines? I think one of the most important things about uh, being able to promote Texas wines is having a good perspective on context for Texas wine. And so to do that, people need to understand the world of wine. And that was why Texon was created. So the conference started in 05, continued to grow and. Uh, 2014, we took over what was the Dallas Morning News Wine Competition uh, that was founded by Rebecca Murphy and uh, renamed it the following year as the Texom International Wine Awards. In addition to that, uh, we published an annual digest for three years uh, called Texom Presents Sommelier as a magazine and have uh done some partnership work uh since then with fairy plaza wine merchant out in san francisco and several others we were uh, doing some events with four seasons in orlando and various wine shops around the country uh restaurants around the country and promoting uh both the award winners from the uh awards that we do and also uh just texom in general so we do quite a few things Uh, it's um it's a full-time job, for sure, and we enjoy it. It's a it's a great time. It allows us to sit at a nexus of the wine industry that allows a perspective, I think, fairly unique. Uh, there aren't probably many people in the industry who work with a variety of, of uh, tiers of the industry that we do. And so it does allow a good perspective on the industry, I think. And hopefully helps people learn and promotes wine and lifts the whole industry. That was the goal. Um, it's a well-used phrase by now, but we started with the idea that a rising tide lifts all boats. and Hopefully keep doing that.
0: Absolutely. One of my favorite components of the awards in particular is that you bring in sommeliers from around the country to come kind of for an in-depth learning experience where they're um, exposed to how the competition runs and they're coached through their learning about wine. And they get to taste a lot of the wines that, that um, score well in the competition. There are a lot of Texas wineries that enter the awards. And I love that these young psalms, most of them are young, um, from all across the country are getting to taste Texas wine, many for the first time. And between the awards and the conference, I think a lot of people probably taste Texas wines for the first time. And I appreciate that. I, I think like most wine professionals, you're curious about the larger wine world. So you don't have maybe a preconceived notion of what Texas wine might be, but you're open to it and interested in it. And um, I appreciate that Texom gives those opportunities.
2: Well, thank you. We certainly try. Uh, we do our best to promote Texas wines and we've done seminars at the conference on them. Uh, we've done specific seminars on grape types and styles and various other things that have included Texas wines in a global context. Uh, we did a, a seminar on Tempranillo a few years ago and we've done them on specific uh, Texas wines themselves. We did a hybrid seminar last year, and Non viniferan hybrid, and we've done that uh, two or three times in various ways to highlight what's going on there. And of course, Blanc de Blanc is one of the most planted and certainly valuable grapes in Texas. In those terms, uh, many wineries have used it, and it's sort of become a signature here. So, I think in those respects, we've given some exposure to Texas wine. In addition to that, you know, I think for Texom, it. it we try to create long-term relationships and sustainability of those relationships. It takes a while. Uh, The other thing is that I often have used the phrase or the the saying that talking is not doing, doing is doing. Um, So we're going to do, and I've been counseled that maybe I should talk about what we do more, (laughs) um, especially uh, in today's environment. But, I haven't always done that. And and so people don't always realize what happens behind the scenes. And I think that's a lot of what you're speaking to. We do a retreat, what we call the Texom retreat, where we do invite in buyers, uh, retailers, and, and sommeliers from around the country to do education uh, for them and also to show them what the wine awards are like, uh, to get them involved in the wine awards, to invest in that. And to show them some of the wines that they may not otherwise have have seen. Uh, a few years ago, Jessica Dupuis, who I know you've had on the show, uh, did a tasting of some wines from my cellar and the Texan cellar that were older Texas wines. 20-year-old, 15, 20-year-old Texas wines to show how they could age. And it, it really, you know, to use a phrase, blew the minds of many of the sommeliers who were in attendance there it was shocking to them because again, it wasn't expected, right? It it was new. And I think that really made an impression. They weren't curated. They were what we had. And I think that made a, an impact. And that's one of the things that I, I think uh, John in your conversation with him highlighted was about, you know, the idea of the low hanging fruit versus the longer road and, and, you know, taking a a harder path. And he was talking about authenticity and with authenticity, there's a certain amount of vulnerability. And so I didn't curate those wines. I put them out, whatever wines we had that qualified for, for that age bracket, I put it out. And I told the group that because I wanted an accurate viewpoint of what Texas was like during those times. And that was one of the big discussions was with 15-year-old Texas wines, that was a different era in Texas wine. Mm -hmm. So it's not current, and people realize that. So it also allowed people to see the arc because they were tasting current wines from the competition because the retreat members aren't judges and therefore can see the wines in the competition. And they can try the wines that interest them in addition to the wines that we're having them do some tasting and writing about that have won medals. So they're getting a broad spectrum of wines, again, context. But they got to see the arc of the development of Texas wine by tasting these older wines from a different era in Texas history, wine history, and then tasting current Texas wine. It was invaluable. I mean, it was invaluable to me. Uh, we did a, a vertical tasting of, of Hack Madera uh, at the Texom conference for our volunteers, which is a whole separate event. Because for the conference, we run a public-facing side, uh, that being trade, but still uh, the attendee side. And then we run a whole separate educational portion for our volunteers who come. Because we want them to get value out of it. And we did a a vertical tasting of of Hack Madeira that I don't think there was a person in the room who wasn't amazed by that.
0: That's cool. I'm sad I missed that.
2: (laughs) I am too. It was a a special tasting. But in addition to that, you know, there are the things like uh, my going... Unfortunately, being able to go to the UK on some business occasionally, and because we invite international judges in for the competition, uh, they get exposed to Texas wines. And so I was sitting at a dinner with, uh, this was pre-COVID, and Stephen Spurrier was still alive, but Stephen Spurrier was there, former chair of the Institute of Masters Wine, was at the table Um, A person who um, does wine listings in the UK was there. uh, Two people from different, um, three actually, people from different international wine magazines were sitting at that table. And because two of those people were judges at our competition, Texas wine became a talk. Now, this this was a dinner for a winery. And the talk was not about the winery. The talk became about Texas wine. How interesting. You know, consequently, the editor of a major international wine magazine, when I was at his house for dinner, wanted me to bring over some Texas wines for him to try. So, those are the types of relationships that um, are sustainable and long term. But they're more subtle, and they're more nuanced, and there's they are relationships. It's not just a marketing spiel.
0: Someone uh, that I interviewed recently, uh, Jean Hoflinger, the uh, international wine consultant, suggested that although wine competitions are beneficial and, and showing that Texas wines can win, Uh, top awards at international wine competitions, he feels that a more important or equally important aspect is for Texas wines to be reviewed by some of the top reviewers in the nation. Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: I I think that's a great idea. I would love to see that. Uh, Again, it goes back to my comments on sales. Uh, These critics and reviewers are deluged with wines. And we, as an industry, need to give them a reason. We need to give them a reason to review the wines. Yep. And we can say, well, Texas is a top five market. That is absolutely a reason. Is it enough? That depends on the reviewer. So in that case, we may want to find some other reasons to add to that to say, look, the, these, are, these are my reasons my understand this is my understanding of why it would be beneficial to you to review my wines please let me know if there are other things that i could do to help you you know Uh, and again make it make it frictionless as much as possible but i find that that in general not not speaking specifically about texas or texas wines all of us tend to use should a lot, and the question becomes why. If we're saying should, then the question becomes why. Why should they? What reason do they have? Um, so I think if we can give reviewers reasons, then yes, they absolutely will. For whatever reason, it doesn't seem that that's happened yet. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly possible. Yep. In my mind, Texas wines are of a quality that they should be reviewed. In my mind, they're of a stature in terms of, of viability for economics and things like that, that they should be reviewed. So I believe that it would be beneficial to publications to do so because it shows that they're covering the entire world of wine and what's important. Uh, I will say that You know, I've contributed to three international publications recently uh, in the World Atlas of Wine. It was just published a couple of years ago, the new update of the uh, Oxford Companion to Wine, which will be coming out. And as of 2024, I'll be contributing to the uh, Hugh Johnson Pocket Wine Guide, all of which cover Texas wine. Good. That's awesome. You know, there's, there are sections in every one of those for Texas wines. And in fact, the, the Southwest section for the U.S. in the pocket guide is anchored with Texas.
0: One interesting feature of, of Texas wine is that there are so many varieties that are produced in the state. And I went to a very interesting seminar at Texom one year about whether or not a region needs a signature grape or a few signature grapes. And, you know, that's another thing we could talk about for an hour. but um, <laughs> <laughs> Or more. Or more. <laughs> yes. um, in 2021, you helped judge the Texas monthly Vintners cup when you selected a dozen wines right. that represent the best in Texas. And that was the first year that had been done. And, I wonder, as you tasted through that, did that change your mind at all? on should Texas have a signature grape? Every grape and every uh, type of wine in that, in that initial case is different. There are no repeats, like no two of any one variety. Uh, there are blends and there are single varietal wines, red, white, and rosé. I guess there's not a sparkling. That's the only thing I'll notice. Um, but, but you've tasted a lot of Texas wines. What do you think about variety and also um, typicity? Another wow. big subject.
2: I was going to say, th- there are many subjects wrapped up in that <laughs> question. So I'll I'll uh, take that and s- extract a few threads out of it, if you don't mind, and, sure. and take them sort of one at a time there. I, one to the Vintners Cup. Um, what an experience. And, uh, doing that was, was eye-opening to me. I also understand it was a snapshot. It it is not an arc, it's a snapshot. And so I don't want to read too much into my observations or the observations of the group. I did write down general observations at the time that we were making about the wines, and I'm happy to share some of those. But again, it's a a snapshot. It is based on the vintages we had, the the producers who entered, uh, much like a wine competition right? So any given year is different. I will say that Tempranillo blends stood out Uh, of of that group that we had um, of the total number of wines there, the Tempranillo blends really stood out. Single variety Bordeaux uh, grapes were surprisingly good. And I say surprisingly because I think in the past few years, there's been this big um, emphasis and a message that maybe Mediterranean or Iberian varieties uh, were better suited for Texas. And there's been some uh, discussion or messaging that the Bordeaux varieties were planted initially because that's what people wanted rather than what was best. But I will say that some of the lesser known Petit Verdot or some of those uh, were very good. Mm-hmm. Cabernet Sauvignon did not show as well that year or at that time. That doesn't mean it doesn't do well in Texas, but I I found the, the other Bordeaux varieties to be a cut above the Cabernet Sauvignons that we tried. Mm-hmm. I think for whites... Um, there's a lot of talk about v and in Texas, and there has been. And, and your question about is a single variety or a couple varieties as a, as a signature necessary is one that has been debated in most wine regions for a very long time. It was a question that was asked at a Twiga conference a number of years ago down in, I believe, it was San Marcos when I attended there. And my answer is the market will shake it out. Mm-hmm. The market will determine that. It's hard for for uh, five hundred wineries to agree on something.
0: We know <laughs> so that's true. I think
2: the market will shake it out.
0: And you know, just because you go to market with a signature variety doesn't mean you you stick with it or that you even want it to stick. And I'm thinking about what we've seen out of Oregon lately. That I mean, yeah. Pinot Noir is great, but but Oregon doesn't want just Oregon Pinot Noir on your wine list, and and now they're really putting a push behind Oregon uh, Chardonnay. So well,
2: is- and and even with Oregon and white wines, it was Pinot Gris for a long time, mm-hmm. with white wines. Yep. And, you know, that was going to be the signature grape of Oregon. And it really, really was for white wines for a long time. And then they discovered they just planted the wrong clones of Chardonnay or, you know, needed to adapt things. And they they got things right with Chardonnay. And now... There, the emphasis is on Chardonnay, and Pinot Gris is really not the emphasis anymore. So that does happen, and I think with Viognier in Texas, there was a lot of talk about Viognier. Still is. I attended the Viognier symposium and and did a history of Viognier uh, with. Uh, I don't know. That was a number of years ago, but it was a. A really interesting conversation because at that time Viognier was being looked at as maybe the signature variety for white wine but what we found over time is that it can be variable and the Viogniers that we tasted for the Vintners Cup overall were made in a style that was more like Chardonnay than Viognier and if you want to make Chardonnay, make Chardonnay because the beauty of Viognier is it's not Chardonnay, it has some of the characteristics but it's, it's not Chardonnay and so I, I don't know about VNA. Um, it, it was There were some great examples, but uh, I found that the winemaking on it was different than what I expected for Viognier because it didn't really highlight the characteristics of the variety. Now, that could have been the year. Viognier is incredibly tricky to grow and harvest. It will go from underripe to overripe in a matter of hours from all the growers I've talked to. So it could have been a tricky year for Viognier, or at least the ones we tasted. However, Roussan had some really good examples, and the White Roam blends were excellent for that tasting. I think what we're still finding out in Texas is what can grow here, because some things that seem to grow well here, when we get one of those deep freezes, sudden and deep freezes on the high plains, some of those grapes those varieties don't respond well to that. Mm -hmm. So we're still figuring out some of this balance of, of climate um, regional characteristics in terms of high plains or hill country and some of these things and, and what, what grapes people will, will want to drink. I mean, we, we do, we do of course grow grapes that um, people clamor for. We, some people grow grapes that are not as recognizable. There's a balance, but we do need to be able to sell the wines. And so we either need to put education into it so that, again, consumers understand why they should buy those wines. What's cool about Suzal, which actually showed really well at that tasting for the Vintners Cup uh, on a small sampling. But also, we need to have some wines that maybe are more familiar, so that people understand that Texas does grow good wines that, that good grapes that are familiar to them. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a, a range of things in terms of being able to to show people what Texas does and and put that out there. Um, topicity was something that uh, you mentioned. I guess my question is, what is topicity?
0: That's my question and, too. There's so and, much uh, inter- so many interesting angles to yeah. this
2: question. So, you know, I I did do some research on topicity at one point, uh, partly I mean for the wine awards, and so you know, typicity, there are a few different definitions, but basically it's something along the lines of the degree to which the wine reflects. And then it varies after that. Variety, origin, place of origin, um, terroir and grave variety. I mean, you get into many things about typicity. I think what most people are trying to differentiate is winemaking style versus some intrinsic characteristics, whatever those are. But I, I think the other question here is who gets to decide what's typical? for a place because that changes. Mm-hmm. Um, you can listen to a Rennie Global's podcast with Felicity Carter and Pauline Vicard on typicity, and it changes the definition or, or what is typical in a place changes. I can give you an example from my experience. When I was coming up in the wine industry and studying for exams many years ago, Bordeaux and Rhone were considered typical if they had Barnyard, Perona. We now know that as Brett, of course, mm-hmm. and it's a spoilage yeast in the end. And now is not considered acceptable. So has the idea of what's typical changed? Yes. We could also look at Barolo. And other areas that have had the modernist versus traditionalist debate, which usually centers around type of wood, length of time in wood, and fruit characteristics. Well, which of those is typical? They both could be. So I think typicity is an interesting thing to talk about because part of it is about who determines what dip- typicity is sure and it's hard to get consensus I mean, even in texas i could give you examples of of wines that i might say were typical but then there are completely different equal number of completely different styles out there and that's that's many places now you know, we used to talk about European versus American styles, but even that has moved towards more of a middle. And I could probably give you as many examples that don't fit what books would say were typical as I could. Those that you know agree with that that description for any given area. So typicity is interesting at the Taxon Awards. I tell our judges that the standard for metals, and, and they vary with the level of metals, but basically the standard of metals as regards to Pissipine is that a wine can be typical of its place or it can be so outstanding in its quality and character that that is considered as good has typicity for judging a medal.
0: I think that because um, typicity is a a wine nerdy topic, I like thinking about it, but the fact is the wine industry as a whole seems to have a problem attracting new wine drinkers and they don't really care if a uh, Sangiovese is lighter color than any other Sangiovese they've ever seen. More than likely, that's their first one. So (laughs) I I think maybe uh, a little thought needs to to go into generating some new, new wine drinkers into this whole discussion.
2: Well, I think so. And, and I think part of that is this idea of um, expertise. And then we get into this conversation, which there are numerous books and other things uh, uh, written about uh, populism versus elitism. Right. And, and, the wine world is interesting because we want to grow our industry, yet we often require people to come to the industry or come to wine drinking through a very specific means, and that is knowing about wine. And it's not unlike some other... Um, passionate pursuits of people, people who enjoy cars or or uh, audio equipment. And if you want to, to get into those sort of circles, you have to do your research ahead of time to be respected, right? And I think it's interesting that while much of the industry uh, says we want to expand the the reach of wine and have more people drinking wine. We also sometimes require people to come to the industry in a specific way, um, which I don't know if those two are compatible always. And I think that discussion of typicity comes in because once we start talking about what's typical in a place, well, how, how would we expect a novice wine drinker to know that? Mm-hmm. And so, what, is, what do most people care about with wine? Exactly what you said. Is it good? Yeah. Is it good? Do I like it?
0: And can I afford and it? So,
2: and can I afford it? Absolutely. Can I afford it? Does this wine satisfy me for the price? And I think the best retailers and sommeliers are the ones who understand that what you're trying to do is find the right wine for that person and you use your knowledge in the in service. You use your knowledge to serve the person in front of you to help them get what will satisfy them. So again, making it about the guest rather than about you.
0: Well, I love that. And you kind of set me up for what I want to tell you, which is that being a volunteer at TechSOM is something that for me, has been really um, an exceptionally great experience. And part of the reason is that there's a service mindset and really an others' mindset that trickles down from the top. I remember one of my first Texan meetings, um, our monthly educational meetings, and we had Jim Clark talking about Wines of South Africa. And after the meeting, we were all set up on these long tables with chairs and glassware and everything And you said, "Okay, we need to break down the room. Well, Jim Clark was up there breaking down tables and putting away chairs with everybody else. And I kind of commented like, oh, you don't have to. And he he made the indication that we all pitch in here and we're all equal and that there was not really a hierarchy of who has to work and who doesn't. But that's just one example. But um, Texan volunteers work so hard and I don't know how. Uh, you have figured out a program to extract so much energy and enthusiasm out of such a dedicated group. But I did want to say thank you for that.
2: Oh Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I look at it as they're giving and we're giving and we all benefit, hopefully. Uh, that is the point of creating educational seminars and, and experiences for our volunteers, that is the point of making sure they get fed, you know, that they have opportunity to meet people, uh, that they have opportunity to interact with each other and hopefully have some opportunity to rest while they're at these <laughs> events because they can be intense. But Taxom was founded on service, on on that idea that it is about the other people. Um, it's it's about the people there and it it became a community you know, and that was, that's the good part. Um, As with any community, uh, that varies sometimes, and we have to be vigilant about that, but it is a community. And I, I think for me, it's not so much extracting from any volunteer as what can we give them? Because they give us so much in terms of, coming to the conference or the competition and devoting time and energy to it because we all believe in it. And I think that is one of the keys to the Texom awards that you and I have talked about before is this idea of community throughout the country and the world. You know, I walked into a wine shop in Adelaide, Australia and had my Texom award shirt on and the guy at the register said, I've been wanting to go. He's like, can you tell me about the awards? <laughs> you know, and it was a little overwhelming. He's, that's not the only experience that I've had. I mean, you know, same thing happened uh, with me sitting in a wine bar in Melbourne and somebody came up wanting to know about judging at the competition. So it is recognized around the world. And hopefully we give our volunteers the opportunity to meet those people who are coming in who are on the international stage for wine and, and have that perspective and they can learn from, from those international guests and from the guests here. I know that many of our volunteers have learned a lot about Texas wines from the Texas wineries that participate as sponsors at the conference. So we hope that we can give to, to the volunteers and I'm glad that you feel like that you've gotten something out of it um, because that's the goal.
0: This is a great time for us to be talking about the awards because we are currently in the submission period, correct?
2: We are. Yes, we are. Uh, We're judging a little bit later this year than had traditionally been the case. So very often we judge the mid-February. That is not going to be the case this year. We're judging uh, at the very beginning of May, May 1st through the 3rd. Uh, That gets us out of the Texas freezing weather snowstorm period. Uh, which uh, has been an issue in the past. It also allowed our entrance, potential entrants to get through uh, their money-making period, which is October, November, December, before they need to think about putting lines into the competition. So we will be judging in early uh, May. Uh, the submission period is open. Uh, we go pretty close to the competition, just a few weeks before the competition And if absolutely necessary, uh, we would take wines all the way up until the day of judging. It just might cost a little more because the processing is pretty intense. Mm -hmm. You've been involved in that. I think it's something that we also don't talk about a lot, but uh, the logistics of that wine awards is um, very intense. We do a, as you know, a lot of verification on the wines uh, pre judging Uh, when they come in. Every wine every bottle of every wine is looked at and verified. And we will go back to wineries to request more information if needed. And that is to ensure that the wineries get the absolute best possible placement for judging. And that is one of the keys to that competition and why our volunteers who do learn through that process are also so valuable. They really are diligent about ensuring that every wine is given the right treatment so you know people can be assured that if they're entering that competition it will the wines will be treated as as a winery would want and we we do take submissions uh, up until a few weeks before the competition on a on a regular basis
0: and if people want to learn more about Texom or find out specifically how to enter their wines where should they visit?
2: Uh, techsom.com. You may click on the awards and submit buttons. Uh, you will be asked to create an account. There is um, an online entry. We do then save those entries so that if you have not entered before, those entries will be saved uh, for next year as templates so that if you're entering wines again next year or the following year, you will be able to use your previous entries as templates, so it's a much easier process to enter at that point. Uh, but we do, we do ask for um, some specific information to ensure that the wines are given a uh, fair shot in the judging. And uh, the results are also on there. Uh, some fantastic Texas wines are listed in those results, and you know, including many of the wines from many of the people you've had on your podcast. So uh, you can see the results there. Uh, There are certificates for download. Uh, We also will send medals to award winners. We do ask that award winners redeem those medals. They are free, Uh, but we um, will send them uh, to award winners uh, if they wish them. And the reason for that is we want to make sure that wineries get whatever is most beneficial for them in promotion. Uh, Some wineries value certificates, some of them bottle stickers, some of them medals. So we try to do a bit of All of that. We have not had stickers, unfortunately, the last two years for bottles uh, due to some supply issues, but we're hoping to get back to that. Uh, So lots of opportunities. And of course, as we mentioned, uh, we have the retreat where, uh, in addition to our volunteers and eventually our judges, of course, the judging is blind. uh, These sommeliers and retailers get to see the wines and taste them. So it's quite an event, a lot of fun. Hopefully, people will enter. We we always love to see Texas wines. Uh, it really shows what's going on here in our state. And I think, you know, from my perspective, has really um, helped the Texas wine industry. But I'm a little biased
0: on that. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I would support that statement, and I appreciate um, these opportunities that Texas wine has to to show what it's all about. So, I look forward okay. to the competition. Thanks.
2: Yeah, thank you. We appreciate your your support and your contributions. Uh, I hope that uh, you've enjoyed your time uh, working with the Texas Wines panel at that, at that competition. Yes, they're, and of course,
0: I want watching. all the great wines to be present at that table, so fingers crossed. Yeah. Anything yeah. I haven't asked you that you want to be sure and mention?
2: I think we've covered most things. I'm Always happy to talk more, but I think
0: can talk all things. day. But I mean, you may have <laughs> that
2: things that—that's <laughs> the thing. We're talking wide and Texas wine. I, I could I could sit here for quite a while, actually, and talk. I might uh, might need to take a break and get some wine at some point. <laughs> but yeah,
0: we haven't even uh, talked about tea or old and rare books.
2: Right, old and rare books. Well, I I actually do have some books that were on Texas wine and and a couple of older printings of things. Of course, not as old as some. From Europe, the industry just isn't that that old. But it's interesting to go back and see how Texas wine was perceived. You know, um, it's a fascinating look, and there are books that mention Texas wines from many years ago. Uh, so it's a it's a fascinating thing to see the arc of the industry, and I'm really happy with how the Texas industry is evolving. I think it's on a great path, and I think that it's. Sunshine ahead. You know, it's it's a there's a lot of opportunity out there. And I think Texas wineries are positioning themselves to definitely take advantage of those opportunities. So I look forward to seeing what the next years are like.
0: Me too. I hope there's sunshine ahead and rain. That's what we need.
2: <laughs> well that that too. That too for sure.
0: Thank you, James. Folks, I'm looking forward to Texom Awards in May. And I'll add my voice to encourage Texas wineries to enter wines into the competition. You can go to Texom.com, then the awards, and then entry submission to enter your wines. And if you have questions about entering, get in touch with James or Amy Henderson through the Texom website. Also, the Texom Sommelier Conference dates are out for this year, and it's on my calendar for August 27th through 29th. Stay tuned for demerits and gold stars. Well, you might have gotten wind of this demerit if you were following Texas Wine Pod on Instagram last week. Regretfully, this demerit goes to the Texas wine tasting that I attended last week. Sadly, I ended up with wine from Michigan in my glass. And yes, this was billed as a Texas wine tasting that supported Texas agriculture. Organizers told me that they allowed any wines to be poured because that's representative of what someone might experience in a Texas winery tasting room. I'm hoping that over time, event organizers will require that participating wineries pour only Texas wines at a Texas wine tasting, because how confusing must that be to attendees when they go to a Texas wine tasting and end up with Michigan wines in their glass? If you're interested in farm-to-table agriculture, And promote an event as one that supports Texas farmers. I'm sorry, you just get a demerit. I'm holding out naming them again in hopes that for next year's event, they will make some changes based on feedback that they've heard from me and also from some of the wineries that attended. But let's end things on a positive note. Today, I'm giving a gold star to a longtime podcast listener and a VIP in Texas wine who has a great new job. Many of you know Eric Sigmund, the former COO at Ready Vineyards. Eric has just started a new job as director of wine education at Southern Glaciers Wine and Spirits. This is the position that was previously held by Master Sommelier Guy Stout, who is now focused on his own wine label after a long career at Southern Glaciers. So a gold star to Eric as he begins this important new role. I know he'll continue to share what's going on in Texas wine now to an even bigger audience. Hey, if you've got something that you consider a Texas wine demerit or gold star, feel free to submit those and I'll share them. Like, for instance, if you saw one of this state's most notorious elected officials at a food and wine festival, perhaps. And if you watched him tasting plenty of wine from California and from around the world, but not a single Texas wine, something like that would be grounds for a demerit, just for example. Well, that's it for this episode. Quick reminder to get your tickets to Rootstock and Toast of Texas and to submit those wines for the Texom Awards competition. Get in touch. Please send your feedback, questions, and ideas for future episodes and your demerits and gold stars. You can email me at texaswinepod at gmail.com. And if you sign up for my occasional podcast newsletter, I'll email you on occasion. There's a newsletter sign up tab on the website, and you'll be the first to know about our next podcast happy hour, fun giveaways, and more. Don't forget to follow my social media channels, at Texas Wine Pod, on Instagram and Facebook, and then comment and share. You'll help me find new listeners who are interested in Texas wine. If this podcast resonates with you, please consider supporting it by going to the website and clicking support the podcast. That's where you can donate virtual Texas wine, which is actually just a donation to my podcast expenses, like attending conferences and podcast web hosting services. I really appreciate it. You can do all that at thisistexaswine.com. And finally, thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Check out txwinelover.com for the new interactive trip planner, a rich collection of blog posts reviewing Texas wines and wineries, and more. And don't forget to download the new app. I'll be back in two weeks with an interview with Brian Chogley of Sandy Road Vineyards. Cheers, y'all.